0: like three people realize it, but it's okay. I remembered to turn it on today, so we should be good. Uh, So today, we are continuing our series on lies that Christians believe. Um, So over the past few weeks, we've gone over things like um, uh, follow your heart, Uh, God won't give you more than you can handle, Uh, God just wants you to be happy. Uh, So today, what we're doing is I turned it on, <laughs> just saying. Uh, today is, uh, so the chapter in the book is called Blink Will Never Change. Uh, so I just put in they will never change. What I f- was originally going to do, I was going to put in like the names Chad and Karen will never change. But I was worried that we would have a Chad or a Karen in here, like that be their actual name. So I decided not to because I didn't want to offend anybody. But um shh. Come on. One of you got it. One of you did. I know one of you did. I heard that. So today we're going to talk about uh, they will never change. So there are times where uh, we have friends or people we know in our lives and we're just like, oh, that person is, they're out there. They're kind of crazy. They, they do a lot of crazy things. You talk to them, tell them, hey, stop acting this way. Stop doing crazy things. But they continue to do crazy things, and you just walk away like, geez, these people will actually never change. Uh, So we're actually going to talk about that, that this is actually a lie that either we tell tell ourselves or we tell within the church. Um, But with that, I'm going to add a little caveat. Every lie that we tell has a grain of truth to it. And so there is a grain of truth to this lie right here that they will never change. Well, Spoiler alert, yes, they will never change on their own. They need some, something, somebody else to change them. And so we're going to talk about that, uh, and we're going to talk about that in detail. But at the same time, there's also another lie that kind of comes up when we talk about this, uh, is that you do not need to change. This is one of those lies that's subtly coming into the church today. Uh, oftentimes, we talked about this a little bit, Uh, with follow your heart or, you know, live your truth, do what you want to do. Uh, So we have this lie that's coming into the church that's kind of creeping in that goes along with this one that, you know, you you really don't need to change. But when we talk about change, saying whether you don't need to change or they will never change, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about change? What do we mean by that? papers aren't cooperating. There we go. So what are we talking about exactly when we're saying, oh, they need to change or you need to change. Um, we're not talking about things like, oh yeah, change your clothing. Well, duh, anybody can change their clothing. We all know how to do that. Uh, we're not talking about changing your behavior or just a moralistic change. Uh, we're not talking about you growing up because hey, when you were younger, what you guys would watch at this time. I'm getting old. Back in my day, when kids were little, they watched Barney. I don't know that he's around anymore. So what is it, Sesame Street? That thing's on forever. So everybody knows that. Like today, are you all still watching Sesame Street? Hopefully if you are, you have younger siblings so you can excuse yourselves. Um, But when we grow up, we, we obviously change. Our likes change. There are things within our lives that change. So what are we talking about when we say Oh, they will never change, or you need to change. Well, we are talking about a fundamental change, a a change at the core of your being, which is basically what I'm saying is you need a heart change. But what what does that mean? Well, that means that something needs to come into your life, change your heart, basically take you from death to life. And so we're going to talk about this whole concept of changing from death to life Uh, throughout this whole talk we're going to first address the need for you to change and then we are going to address somebody else needing to change or why they can change or better yet how they can change Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of the prodigal son um, which I don't think is a great title for that story that Jesus tells it shouldn't be the prodigal son it should be the prodigal son's plural because we're going to take a look at them and we're going to see okay what is going on here with both these sons and why should we consider both of them prodigal rather than just the one Uh, so if you're not familiar with the story I'm going to recap the story real quick and then we're actually going to look at it backwards we're going to start at the end of the story and then go forward so I'm going to try to catch you all up because we're going to do it all mixed up and everything Uh, so the story of the prodigal son is there's a guy who has two sons Uh, obviously there's an older and there's a younger, and this is how they will refer to the sons in the story. So the younger son tells his father, he goes, hey, I want my inheritance. Uh, So the strange part about this story, when he comes to his father and tells him, I want my inheritance, is that back in those days, you didn't receive your inheritance until either the father was on his deathbed, or he has already died. And so then he will, the Either he, before he dies, will split the inheritance, or after he dies, the inheritance will be split. He can't do the splitting anymore well, because he's dead. So. But the son comes to the father and says, hey, I want my inheritance. The father's nowhere near to be dead at this point. So he's just like, I wish you were dead so I can have my inheritance. So give it to me now. So the father agrees, and he splits the inheritance. Gives the older son his, gives the younger son his. The younger son then goes off lives a crazy lifestyle, does a bunch of crazy things, loses all of his money, wastes everything, Uh, can't afford food, can't do anything. So what does he do? He sells himself into servitude, ends up feeding the pigs, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit. It's a very unclean thing, something that the Jews did not like to do um, and which they were not supposed to do. So he lives with the pigs, eats the pigs' food, then realizes, you know what? My father's servants, they do better than this. At least they don't eat with pigs. So then he realizes, oh, I need to go back to my father. I need to repent and say, hey, what I did was wrong. Goes back to his father, repents. His father welcomes him. Uh, the older brother gets mad because he was there the whole time and is like, hey, why is the younger brother allowed to come back? and You're throwing him a party. Gets mad at his father. His father explains things to him. That is the end of the parable. So with that in mind, we are going to go ahead and we're going to jump right in. We're going to be Luke 15 is where this is, and we're going to jump to the near the end of it. Uh, so we're going to Look at verses 28 through 30, uh, and then we will work through it from there. So starting at verse 28, it says, "Then he became angry, so this is the older son. He became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, "Look, I have many I have been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends." But when this son of yours, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. So when I was younger, I used to always struggle with this part of the story because I could just look at the younger brother and be like, yeah, look at this fool. He just wasted all of his dad's money. He went and partied all kinds of crazy ways, and he just acted like a fool. And then he comes back, and his father throws a big party for him. And then the older brother's basically like, yo, dude, I've been here this whole time and yet you're not giving me a goat to celebrate, but you gave him a calf. You could have given me the least of your things and we could have just celebrated and you know had a party for me. So I, was always, I always struggled with this. I never understood, well, what is the big deal? I mean, he did what was right, didn't he? So what is the big deal? Why is this an issue? So you pay attention to exactly what he says here uh, in verse 29 he says look I have been slaving many years for you I mean does that sound like something you do for your parents like man I've been doing all this work for you I've been trying to appease you by all these things that I do for you so when you, when you do something for somebody, let's talk about two different groups of people. When you do something for somebody you like, just anybody, do you feel like you're slaving for them? Or do you normally do something out of love for that person and you're just like, oh yeah, it's no problem, I'll do this, no problem whatsoever. But if you dislike the person, do you like doing things for the person you dislike? No, it's kind of like, man, I've been slaving for you. So really, what the son is telling the father here, just like what the younger brother was telling the father, was I don't like you. I do not want to serve you. And I've been doing all these things for you because I wanted you just to give me your things, and I didn't want to do it out of a love for you. So this is, one of the, this is the big issue with what's going on in the son's heart at this time, And when I came to that realization, when I was younger, looking through these passages, I was like, oh, snap, that's me. It's like, I am not doing things out of a love for, well, we can actually say ultimately a love for God. I'm just doing things so that, you know, God can look at me and say, oh, what a good little boy you are. Now come on into the gates of heaven, because you have done so well by doing all these works. And well, when we look at the rest of scripture, we see, though, this isn't how it works. Not at all. It's that we can't just earn our way or work our way into heaven and this is kind of what the what the older brother here is doing in this passage is just he's appealing to what he is doing himself so in reality what's going on here is the older brother is not doing this for god he's doing it for himself he's not doing it for a love for god he's doing it out of love for himself he's not doing it out of worship for god but he's doing it out of worship for himself because if we don't worship God, who do we worship? Well, we could say, oh, there's all these idols that people worship. No, really, in the end, we worship ourselves. And we could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and we see in Adam and Eve, there wasn't another idol out there. What'd they do? They ultimately wanted to worship themselves. They're like, we want to be like God. So this is what the older brother wanted. He's like, I wanted to be the father. I don't want the father to be the father. I want to be the father. So I'm going to reject you, and I'm going to worship myself. I'm going to love myself, and I'm going to do everything for myself. This is one of those hard realities that I had to come, come across. I was very much the person who was like, you know what, I don't need to change. Everybody else needs to change. Because look at them, they're all running around, and they're acting like fools, and I'm here doing all the good things. I don't need to change. Well, no, that's, that's not true. Because well, what does it say? What does Scripture tell us about ourselves when we go around trying to do all the good things? Well, let's take a look. Let's see. So in Romans 9, 15 and 16... Uh, this is Paul. He's going to quote. He's going to quote Moses here a little bit. And then he's going to add his two cents to it at the end. So he says, For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then this is Paul adding his two cents to that. And he says, So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. So we can relate this back to the older brother. Was the older brother relying on that the father loved him, therefore he did things for the father? Because the father loves him, he loves the father in return, and will do things? No. He's basically just, re- he's, he's depending on himself. He's like, look, I'm going to do all these works and everything, so that way you can love me for these works. Instead of depending on the father for loving him, just because the father chooses to love him. And we're going to look at another passage here in Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says, All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. So when we look at this thing, like all of us are like an unclean, something unclean, like a polluted garment. Uh just like the younger brother with the pigs, we're going to look a little bit more into this once we really start talking about the younger brother. We see that the things that we try to do apart from God, when we try to be good apart from God, it's worthless. It's like an unclean rag. It's like a polluted garment that it says here. It's something that it's dirty, is basically what he's saying. So anybody here, I know some of you have done this, anybody here ever work on a cars or been around anybody that's working on cars and they pick up this rag and it's got grease all over it all in it and stuff and so you pick up this greasy rag and you start to wipe off the other grease that's on you does it work no because it's a greasy rag what do you start doing you just start spreading grease all over the place and you know when I was younger when my dad would be working on a car and my mom told me to go out there and help my dad and my dad was like no I got this and so I would sit there And I'll be like, man, so what would I do? I would pick up that greasy rag and I would smear myself with it a little bit to make it look like I was working with my dad. Sometimes it worked. Most of the times it didn't. She would go to my dad, he didn't help you, did he? He's like, no. I was like, that's your fault, not mine. Anyways, this filthy rag is basically like our good works. We're trying to work here to earn this favor with God, yet all we're doing is just smearing around all this uncleanness, all this filthiness. That's exactly what the older brother is doing. He's just smearing around all of this filth, all this grime and everything, and then he says, look, I've been here the whole time. Yeah, you have been here the whole time, but you're using dirty rags. You don't have clean rags. He didn't go to the Father and get clean rags. So this next quote here, it's from Shane Pruitt, the author of the book. He says, the goal of the gospel is not to affirm you, celebrate you, and accept you. The goal of the gospel is to rescue you, transform you, and redirect you. This is the issue that the older brother is having. He's sitting there, he's like, hey, affirm me. I've been here doing all these works. Celebrate me. Give me a goat so we can have a party because I've been doing all these works for you. And accept me because I've been here the whole time. When he doesn't realize that he too needs rescuing, just as much as the younger brother does. He needs to be transformed and he needs a new direction in life. So now now that we're done looking at why you need a change, so typically the older brother is looked at as the one that needs to change but doesn't think he needs to change. We're gonna look at the younger brother who is typically looked at as the one that they will never change. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of this parable. Uh, verses 12 through 13 Luke fifteen. in Luke 15. So the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So again, when we look at this, we see... The son didn't want anything to do with the father really. And in in the end, he was like, I wish you were dead. Just give me my things so I can go and do what I want. And when we compare him to the older brother, we see neither one of them in what they did were loving the father. The older son was just trying to appeal to the father by just doing works without actually doing what the father wanted him to do. And the younger brother was just like, you know what? I don't even wanna try to please the father. I'm out of here. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Well, let's see what happens with the younger son in the next portion here. So we're going to go to verse 17. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, we're talking about the younger brother here, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? So this statement right here, he came to his senses, that's kind of like one of those statements we see over and over in the Bible where it says, but God. That means we've done something, but God is about to interfere, and he's going to do something else. So this statement about him coming to his senses is kind of like the statement of, oh, the light bulb turned on. It's this aha moment. It's like, oh, I just realized that. It's kind of like when we're doing a math problem or whatever problem, we're sitting there, we're like, man, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it. Until finally, 20 minutes later, an hour later, or whatever, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I get it. And we we solved the problem, and it's just the easiest math problem ever. It's like two plus two equals four, and yet we just don't understand it. I hope we do understand it, even though some people say two plus two doesn't equal four. That's why I stopped doing math. So anyways, we see something happens here. Some type of light bulb turns on. So we're gonna look at another passage Here's Ephesians 1:16 through 17. Paul is talking to a church here in Ephesus, and he kind of tells them the same thing. He tells them, hey, you all had an aha moment, but where did that aha moment come from? Uh, let's look at it, let's read it and see. So starting in verse 16, it says, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayer. So he's talking to the church here, this is Paul. He says, I pray that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, Doesn't this kind of sound like the son? He's sitting there. He's eating all the pig food, and he's, like, working with pigs and everything, all the slop and stuff. And then he's just, like, got this aha moment. His eyes are open, and he's like, wait a minute. Don't my father's servants eat better than I'm eating right now? Don't they live better than what I'm living right now? Isn't that what that says right here? Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of glorious inheritance in the saints, He's like, hey, look, there's all these great benefits and everything that God has done for them. And this is what the son realizes. So let's look at what happens next here with the son and see how all of this actually plays out. So in verses 18 through 20, he decides, he says, I'll get up, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one like your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. So let's look even more. We're going to look at the next passage here. We're going to see what else does the father do besides running out to greet him. Because this says, hey, the son was in the, was, he was quite a ways off. We see something enlightened his eyes. We see the son finally is like, oh, hey, you know what? I realize something's wrong. And on his way back, there was the father who runs out there to meet him. He throws his arms around him, he gives him a kiss, and he's just filled with compassion for his son. Well, what happens next? So, verse 22 through 24 says, but the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatty calf and, and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. So they began to celebrate. So we're going to look at this, we're going to break it down a little bit and see what do each one of these things mean? What the father is doing for this son right now, what exactly does it mean? Well, we can break down each one. First of all, he shows his son compassion because he didn't condemn him. It wasn't that, oh, the son came all the way to the father's house and the father was like, what are you doing here? No, the father saw him walking in the distance and the father ran to him and he showed him compassion. He didn't bring up his past to him. He didn't bring up what he had done. He shows compassion to him right away. He shows the son love by embracing his son. It says that he threw his arms around him and embraces him. Uh, He celebrates the son by having a feast for him. And then he has joyful restoration of the son by giving him a robe, a ring, and sandals. So these three things actually have meaning to them as well. So he gives him this robe for distinction, showing this is a particular type of robe. You are my son, so I'm going to put this robe on you to signify that you are my son. Uh, It's kind of like if you think about Joseph with his robe of many colors, uh, his father gave that to him because he's like, you're my special son, and this signifies that. This is kind of the idea what the father is doing for this son right here. He's like, you are my special son. I'm going to give you this robe here to show everyone that you are my son. The ring is typically a thing of authority. It shows that because you belong to this, you have now been given this particular authority within the family. So it's like back in the day, you would have this little ring with this little signet on it. And if you were to write a letter, you would press the ring into the little seal. And that meant, hey, this is official business. This is from this family and they have authority from this family so if you had this particular ring it's like hey you've got authority within this family uh, and the last one here he gives him sandals the son when he originally was coming back to the father he was like you know what i'm going to go and i'm going to ask to be one of the servants he'll let me be a servant and i'll be okay so the sandals are significant because servants didn't wear sandals they were typically barefoot So the father, instead of being like, hey, you know, we'll celebrate you a little bit. I'm not going to give you shoes because you're going to be a servant. No, he gives him his shoes. He says, no, you are my son. You're not my servant. You're my son. And I'm giving you these to signify that you are my son. So we're going to look at what is the significance of all of this. What does all of this even mean? Uh, First of all, we're going to go back and we're going to work our way back to From the beginning to the end, again. So this first quote here, Dustin Binge says that unbelievers recognize their sin as their freedom. This sounds like the younger son. He goes, I want my freedom. I don't want to be around my dad anymore. Give me my freedom. So he goes off and he does whatever. He parties and acts all crazy. He thinks this is his freedom. But then he realizes, once he's eating with the pigs, yeah, this isn't freedom. I'm now enslaved to all of the things that my sin has caused. But the rest of the quote says, believers recognize their sin as their bondage. This is exactly what the son realizes. He's like, I'm in bondage. I need to go back. It would, better, it would be better to be a servant of my father than to be a servant to my sin. This next quote here, this goes back to the older brother. It says, repentance without turning to Christ is not saving repentance. So he's sitting there. He's doing all these works. But he forgets he's doing these works with this dirty rag. Instead of doing it with something clean. It's hollow moralism. It's not enough to feel guilty over your sins. You must turn to Christ and follow him in order to be saved. So like this is where we're at with both of the, both the younger brother and the older brother. The story ends with the older brother complaining to the Father, and then the father tells him, "We need to celebrate your brother because he is now gone from death to life." And yet it ends there. We don't hear anything more about the older brother, whether the older brother repents or not. Then again, it is just a story that Jesus was telling. These were not real people. But the story is a good reminder to us that if we are trying to rely on our own works or thinking that, hey, you know, I do not need to change fundamentally at all, that I'm good, that I can live my truth, that I can follow my heart, that I can do whatever I want to do, well, we're sadly mistaken just like the older brother is. we fall into the same boat that he's in that you know we just we just keep playing with our dirty rags and keep smearing it around. But with the younger brother, we see him moving from we see him moving from death to life. We see a true repentance happening. We see the father bringing him in and accepting him. But how did he get there? well he, his eyes were opened he came to this realization this is the work of God so if we see if there's somebody in our lives that we're like you know what this person's just they are so far gone they're just never going to change I've seen a lot of people like that I grew up with people like that within my youth group some people completely rebelled once they were done and out of, out of school and they just went away and the sin that they chose to live in they lived in it for years ten years at least I'm going to date myself. I've been out of high school for like 17 years now. It's longer than some of you have been alive, and that is really weird to think about. But there are people that I know, looking back at this, that is like for 10 years, they chose to just live whatever kind of lifestyle they chose to live. And they didn't want anything to do with God, didn't want anything to do with church, didn't want anything to do with any of it. But somehow God still came into their life and interrupted them in their sin, came to them when they were sitting there in their little pig pen and their unclean slopness, when they were eating all this pig slop, and he opened their eyes and he said, no, this isn't, this isn't for you. I have something better for you. I'm going to call you to myself. He called them to come home like the younger brother was. And then the father went running after them and said, no, you are my child. You're not some person who just is a slave to their sin, eating with the pigs. No, you're my child. I'm gonna give you a robe, I'm gonna give you a ring, and I'm gonna give you shoes, and I'm gonna show that you belong to me. And so oftentimes we kind of forget about this, that this is what God did for us. And if God has done it for us, because we are just like the older brother, and some of us are like the younger brother, if God did it for us, then God can do it for anybody. And we look throughout the the history of the Bible, and we see a lot of people who are like, what do you mean this person's a Christian? Like Paul, for example, uh, he was going around killing Christians. And then when he was converted, and God told people, hey, I'm going to send Paul to you, and they heard about it, and they're like, wait a minute, you're talking about the same dude who's going around killing everybody? Yes. And they're like, no, we don't want him here. There's no way he changed. And then they meet him, and they realize, oh, wait, this guy did change and he ends up becoming one of the leaders of the church so we can look at throughout history and we can see the gospel's for everybody and god can work in anybody so what do we do about that well first of all we depend on god and how do we do that by praying for people like really, but what good does praying do well First of all, prayer is is something that humbles us, is that we understand that we can't do anything to change somebody, but God can do it. And so when we come before God and we pray to God and we ask him, God, change this person, work in this person's heart, we're humbling ourselves saying, we can't do this, but we know that you can. We have seen your works and we have seen what you have done. And we know that you can still do this. We know that you can change this person because why look around the room how many of you all say that you're believers god has changed your heart some people may have gone around and been like hey you know what i don't think so and so one of you would have ever changed well but did you and was it just you no it was god he opened your eyes he brought you to himself so with that this last quote here the gospel's for everyone it's for the righteous the older brother it's for the righteous the younger brother it's for those who are what do we say today we call them virtue signalers those who go around and tout their good works hey look at all the good that i've done and i'm just going to show off well they need the gospel too because they can't just earn it by the good that they're going around and doing the gospel is also needed by those who do the condemning the older brother definitely condemned the younger brother he needs the gospel too So when we look at this, we see that all of us need the gospel, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And we also need to realize God is powerful. He is powerful enough to change both the righteous ones and the unrighteous ones. So with that, we are dismissed. The seniors are in the portables and everybody else is gonna be in this room.